Hi, Eric. I'm sorry not to be with you this weekend, but I did want to take just a moment to introduce you to our newest team member, uh, Josh Sonnenberg. You're, you're going to love Josh. Uh, Josh is a guy that we've known for years. Uh, he's from Helena, graduated from Helena High, uh, went back east and went to school, came back and spent about eight months with us here at Narrate for what must have been our second year together as a church, and then went off to Korea and taught for a couple years, and then came back to Helena was with us again for a few months, then went to Bozeman, got a second bachelor's degree, and then was on his way back to Helena uh, without necessarily having a job at Narrate when all of our transition with Caleb happened, and we, we just couldn't be more thrilled to have Josh joining the team. Uh, his, his technical title is leading creative production and student teams, uh, but we think like everybody else, he'll have his hands in lots of things, and we just couldn't be more thrilled to have him on the team. So if you'd help me, welcome Josh Sonnenberg. Hi, Narrate. How are y'all doing? All right. Um, so... One funny thing about that video, Adam didn't share one detail, and I don't know if he remembers it or not, um, but the, our first lengthy interaction together, uh, the way that happened is kind of a funny story. I had just graduated college, um, and it wasn't my plan, <clears throat> but I moved you know, into my parents' basement and was very unsatisfied with that. Uh, and also, at the same time, uh, I was going through a breakup and I was questioning God and the church at this time period, so I didn't go to narrate much. Uh, my parents went here. They no longer do because they live in Texas. God bless them. Uh, <clears throat> but, um, and so my mom called Adam on behalf of her 23-year-old broken-hearted little boy and said to him, uh, could you just sit down to coffee with my son? He's pretty tore up right now. Um, to which I responded with, Mom, why would you do that? You know, in your classic 23-year-old that lives with his parents' voice. Um, <laughs> but um, anyway, Adam was gracious enough to uh, meet up with me. And um, since then, we've been friends. Um, and so if that's the way our friendship was supposed to start, then so be it. Um, but... Uh, in interacting with Adam over the past several years, I have some friends that go to this church, um, and in uh, interacting with them about Narrate, and I've listened to the vast majority of Narrate's podcasts, uh, I've, I've found myself continually encouraged by this community of people. So thank you for that. Uh, I am very thrilled and very grateful to be able to grow and serve with you. I look forward to learning from you. And so let me just take this moment right now to just express my gratitude for uh, taking me in. Thanks. And I anticipate a bright future. Um, today, we're going to talk about uh, success. And uh, to give you, a, you know, the basic description of what success is, you know, having uh, a successful job, a good career, and being so many steps up on the uh, social ladder, um, a spouse and kids and a healthy marriage and excellent kids and so on. Uh, we've galvanized that, uh, that state of being into the American dream. We're all in pursuit of our own American dream. Uh, but the issue is sometimes in real life brushes up against 
those goals and things don't work out the way we had hoped and dreamed. And then the question I want to ask is, in those moments, does God confront societal demands? Does God confront cultural standards? And in answering this bigger question, I want to ask, which uh, a, frankly, a shallow question uh, that'll get us started. And that question is, uh, what's your relationship with something like social media? Uh, because social media is an incredible tool for comparing yourself to others. There's also a lot of fun things you can do with social media. It's a great way to just see um, how people are goofy. For example, Instagram. Does any, do any of you have Instagram? Or if you're uh, a dad over 50 years old, you probably call it Instantgram. <laughs> but... Um, Instagram is great. I love it. Uh, it's a fun app. It's probably my favorite social media avenue. I only have like two followers, and that's reflective of either the fact that I'm a bad photographer or uh, I don't have any friends or all of the above. Um, but uh, it's a fun app, and sometimes I find myself scrolling through it, and I'm just impressed with the work of incredible photographers. And then in scrolling through, I'll see a picture with some, uh, and some guy will have a caption to it like, this chili dog I ate last week was really good. <laughs> and it's just like, that's not art. That's, that's a chili dog, you know. <laughs> or uh, is everyone familiar with the use of hashtags? Okay, like two of you. Um, hashtagging, I, I understand the purpose in it. Like, for example, hashtag Helena MT. It puts you in a community of people who are also taking pictures of the Helena area. And so there's community there, right? But then sometimes people will make a totally useless hashtag, like hashtag my zipper was down for two hours this morning, hashtag LOL. <laughs> like... No one else has that. No one else uses that, you know. It's not useful, but that doesn't actually bother me. I think if it did legitimately bother me, then I would have some health issues. But <laughs> it's something fun to observe. But as I just said, social media is also a tool that makes it incredibly easy to compare yourself to others. Um, and that is almost always a destructive practice because if you're doing real, really well whenever several others are not, then you run down that slippery slope of pride and then in that moment you neglect the fact that it was probably God and others that also contributed to your success. And the alternative to that is uh, to not be doing so well while so many of your friends or in social media, friends, uh, are doing well. And so you begin to evaluate yourself and think to yourself, why do all these people have it together and I don't? Why are things going so well for them and not for me? And of course, social media is not the only tool of comparison there are, or cultural influence or uh, demands of success. There is also uh, your family, right? I know for me, uh, out of all my family, uh, my parents are the people whom I look up to the most. And they have been incredibly supportive. But I've interacted with some friends whom did not have supportive family members or supportive parents. 
And it's difficult for them because they made some decisions for themselves and their uh, family members weren't entirely thrilled with those decisions. And so it adds stress and tension and difficulty to the relationship and on the individual. And then your friends. You might have friends that are of excellent character, but it's human nature to compare yourself with them, right? Because all of us are in pursuit of this success, this relational value, monetary value, and so on. And, of course, there are other avenues, too. There are things like media. Uh, there is your local culture. For us, that's the Helena Valley. Um, there are several things demanding us to be this way, to do things this way. And the issue is sometimes it just doesn't work out. So what are the feelings that you have in those moments? I am not competent enough. I am not wealthy enough. I'm not handsome or pretty enough. Have you ever been rejected by uh, perhaps a job or someone that you're crushing on or a group of friends whom you're trying to uh, join their friend group? In those moments of rejection, if you're anything like me, what you're inclined to do is begin to think of ways in which you didn't measure up. Well, if I was just uh, a little bit more intelligent, a little bit more articulate, if I had a better personality, if I was a little more handsome or a little more pretty, and it just becomes this cycle of not enough. Of course, there's nothing wrong with personal development. There's nothing wrong with developing your relationships. That's from the heart of God. He wants to see us grow, right? But what if things aren't working out? Does God confront these demands in those moments? Some would argue that, uh, that these success demands are a relatively new phenomenon in it because of the fact that our world is so interconnected at this point. Um, and, you know, of course, that's partly true. We can know what is going on with several people very easily. Uh, But I'm going to argue that in the text, there are moments way, way back in history where God is interacting with an individual who is dealing also with the societal demands of his culture and those whom he lives around or she lives around. One of those stories is uh, the story of Abram. Prior to Abram's initial interaction with God, we don't know much about, at least in the text, we don't know much about what his life was like. But we can safely assume that he had your standard um, ancient Middle Eastern male life. And so he probably had some land that he farmed on and he depended on those crops for his survival. Probably had some livestock that he depended on. And then also... He probably wanted to have children so his family could continue. One issue for Abram was that his wife, Sarai, could not have children. Uh, And God interacts with this man and says to him, I want you to leave this life that you have known. Abram at this point is a very old person. And he says, I want you to leave this life that you have known for all this time and go to a land that I will show you. And I will bless you if you do that. And Abram, in his bravery, he does that. And then 
further along in the text, God interacts with Abram and says to him, you will be the father of many nations. Your offspring will be as numerous as the stars, and this offspring will be a blessing to the entire world. And, of course, we just mentioned Sarai is, is barren. She can't have a child. So how is this going to happen? And you see dialogue in the text between Abram and God. They interact with one another. And Abram says to God, I love this promise, but I continue childless. And God says to him, you will have descendants. And then he has the audacity to say to Abram, I want you to change your name from Abram, which means noble father, to Abraham, which means father of many. And then there's some more dialogue between Abram, Abraham at this point and God. Um, and eventually, him and his wife, Sarah, she had her name changed as well. He and his wife, Sarah, have a son whose name is Isaac, which means laughter, which I assume denotes the fact that Abraham and Sarah were joyous at finally having a boy, a child. And then in a wild turn of events, God says to Abraham, okay, I want you to take your son up on the mountain and sacrifice him to me. Now, can we just be brave for a minute and ask some honest questions? What kind of a God asks a man to kill his kid? And, and you hear sometimes in Judaism and Christianity, you hear uh, the faith of Abraham celebrated. What kind of religious system celebrates the faith of a man that was willing to kill his son? At an initial glance, it seems like this is just an incredibly barbaric story. But... There's some context that could prove helpful. And then also, what if we change the main character in this story? It's not Abraham. It's not Isaac. It's actually God. He is the main character in this narrative. So considering the context, we just mentioned that uh, Abraham, he had lived your standard ancient Middle Eastern life. And so he depended on food and livestock uh, for his survival and um, obviously, this was a problem for his wife, but they probably had ambitions to have children. And what Abraham came to the conclusion of, and this goes way back to uh, you know prehistoric era, uh, these people came to a conclusion that I am dependent on this plant, I am dependent on this livestock, but despite how much I try to make my crop successful, and keep my animals healthy, and ensure that uh, my wife and I will have children, healthy children. Despite how much I work at that, there are powers that are outside of me that I do not control that are manipulating the situation. This plant depends on just the right amount of sun. Too much, and there's drought and burning. Too little, and there's no growth. Or this plant also depends on water and not too much. Otherwise, there's flood and not too little. Otherwise, there, otherwise there's drought. 
And so uh, these people started to conclude that the sun, it must be a god, or water, rain, weather systems, they must be gods. This, in the act of a birth, again, there's so much that is outside of my control, and so there must be some god or goddess that dictates whether or not a birth will be successful. And so they worshiped these deities, and in moments of success, when they had a good crop or uh, had successful, uh, healthy animals, then they would offer to these deities, these gods and goddesses, um, a sacrifice in an expression of their gratefulness for providing. But just like in our life, sometimes real life doesn't have the same plan. And sometimes you deal with drought and you don't have any food. And sometimes you deal with your animals not becoming healthy. Or in Abram's life, you and your wife cannot get pregnant. And in those moments, religious historians say that it became this system that was uh, more and more demanding. Because if your crop wasn't successful, then obviously what you sacrificed recently was not enough. And so we have to give a little bit more. And it became this cycle of more and more and more. We only have this much food left, but it hasn't rained in this amount of months. We have to give more, and hopefully that will appease that god or goddess. It became such a system of continual not enough, not enough, that in fact there were some deities that required your child, just like this god was doing in interacting with Abraham. In fact, the Old Testament mentions one of them. You hear the Hebrew gods say, I detest the god Molech because Molech requires your firstborn. And then going back to the mountain, Abraham and Isaac are walking up and Isaac, (laughs) in a moment of nervousness, is like, "Uh, where are the animals, dad? (laughs) And Abraham, I imagine, uh, in a moment of fear, but just masking the issue, said, uh, God will provide. And then right whenever Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac, an angel intervened and said, don't, don't. There's a ram over there in the thicket. You can use it for a sacrifice. What if this God was comparing himself to the deities of the area and saying, look, I don't require so much I will provide for you. In fact, the text says, if you could go to the next slide. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. Fast forward, there's a man by the name of Jesus in the Middle East. um, And Jesus entered into a world that was wrestling a great deal with oppression. It's an imperial society. They're underneath the Roman Empire, which is very harsh. And then also, they're dealing with incredibly corrupt, oppressive religious leaders. See, during Jewish history, God started to continue pulling humans forward. And though the Jewish people had a sacrifice system, the difference between theirs and the surrounding religious systems is if you give X amount of sacrifices, then you are at peace. You are enough. It's done. Over. Period. And that's, a, that's in stark contrast to all these other deities that were continually requiring more and more and more. 
And despite the fact that in Jewish history, this sacrifice system involved a great deal of peace, these religious leaders in the Middle East during Jesus' time, they turned it back to, again, this you're not enough. You are incompetent. You don't fulfill the law as well as you should. You are not good enough. And so it was this, again, this system of brokenness and added brokenness because you dealt with the anxiety and fear and the lack of peace. And Jesus, in the greatest sermon ever given in human history, he rocks their system by saying, you, you have assumed for your entire life that it is these people whom have it all together that are blessed. But I'm here to tell you, blessed are the poor in spirit or blessed are the broken. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those um, who have been marginalized by society, persecuted and so on. And then he even says within this narrative, if you go to the next one, he says in this sermon, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, this law that has, you've been dealing with and you've been trying to fulfill. I have come to, uh, not to abolish them, but to fulfill these laws. So in me, you are enough. In me, you are good enough on a spiritual capacity and then also on a social level as well in your normal everyday life. Narrate, what if in our wrestling with success, because I assume that the vast, vast majority of us will have moments where it's just like, man, things aren't working out despite how hard I try. What if God intervenes in these moments for us just as he did in Abraham's life and just as Christ did 2,000 years ago? What if this God is a God of grace? What if he would confront our societal demands with that same grace? And in that, in God's example, what if we should treat ourselves with the same amount of grace? See, because there's two options in growing as an individual, growing in your relationships. You can strive. <clears throat> you can strive or you can, you can embrace grace. Striving involves you start, your starting point in striving is, well, I am lacking in these areas. Um, and so what I'm going to do is I'm going to work better and do better and be better. And then things will work out for me. But so often that isn't the case. And so what actually happens is there's added brokenness. And now all of a sudden, not only are you dealing with being unfulfilled, but you're wrestling with anxiety and jealousy and anger and other destructive emotions. Grace, growing in grace involves understanding that you right now, where you are at in your position of life, you are whole but that God has the audacity to not keep you there, but allow you to grow and influence you to grow. But in that wholeness, <clears throat> you then uh, are fulfilled 
and joyous and at peace. And in those emotions, you can begin to grow as an individual in grace. And also, it gives you the capacity to be gracious toward others. So, Neri, um, it's my hope that as we grow together, when I said I'm excited earlier at the very beginning of this talk, when I said I'm excited to grow with you, I really meant that. And it was very intentional because as far as I can tell, those of you whom I have uh, interacted with so far, it seems like you take growth uh, is a big deal. It's, it, you, you handle it very intentionally. So as we grow together, may we start from the platform of grace. May we treat ourselves um, as individuals with grace. May we treat one another with grace. And may we understand that this God whom we serve and love is a God of grace. Thanks. Let's pray. God, um, thank you so much that uh, you have intervened in human history and you have pulled us forward and put us in a position of peace. I pray, God, that just as Abraham embraced it, just as Christ embraced it, that we too would embrace a life of grace. Um, and in that, may we grow um, as individuals and with one another. Amen. If you would like to engage further with Narrate Church, you can find contact information online, www.narratechurch.org. We would love to hear from you.